All right, so 90 years ago this week was a, a business meeting. Uh, the 17th marks the, the, the well, what should we call it, the summination or the gestation process of the birth of Grace Bible Church, what would become known Grace Bible Church. A uh, group of people met together and actually selected officers uh, and put things in place very officially, formally. Uh, but the first services, first worship service, would be Sunday the 22nd in 1933. Well, we come to that 90, that 90 year span. And so over the next couple, next few Sundays, we're going to, oh, dwell a little bit on our, our heritage. On our cornerstone, when the building eventually came here in 1953, it's the, the smaller, the chapel area, just out, out that direction, um, on the cornerstone, they put this phrase from Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life. And if some of you have seen older pictures, you know that one of the original signs and banners, I think it was over the Oddfellows Hall, it said this, it said this very thing, holding forth the word of life, uh, Philippians 2.16, just this little segment of it. But uh, the sentence is a Pauline sentence, so it's a long sentence, but the context right around it has this idea of shining as stars. So bring in verse 15. You shine as stars in the world, holding forth the word of life. Now last Sunday, we celebrated what we call in the church calendar Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany comes from the word in Matthew chapter 2 of the star appearing. That's the word we get Epiphany from. Shpino, the star shining or appearing to the Magi who come to worship the Lord Jesus, the child Jesus. This, this idea of shining, we celebrated Christ in His life, in His ministry, as a shining of life in a dark world and the darkness that is being exposed and exterminated uh, by the coming of the light. But now we read in places like Philippians 2, and if we were stayed in Matthew, we'd get to Matthew chapter 5 and find that we too are lights in the world. We're reflecting lights of the real light, the Lord Jesus Himself. Shining forth as stars in the world. Now, I, I did literally translate this as stars. Uh, it is the word there. Uh, the ESV, which, which a number of us use and read, says lights. Uh, your translation may have something similar or various like this. This is fascinating. And this picks up on the, the imagery from Daniel chapter 12 where the righteous will shine like the stars in heaven. You want to shine? You want to shine? You don't want, don't want a shiner, but do you want to shine brilliantly with life and light? Well, we're going to reflect a little bit upon this uh, section of verses surrounding Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse 16. We read the wider context in Philippians. We get this, this sense of the work and ministry of Christ, which said again is the light of the world. So we're going we're to call this little mini-series, the next three weeks, Luminous. Uh, luminous, shining as stars. Now, with, within this situation, uh, we're, we're going to learn what it is and how we will shine. We'll take it in three parts. First, we're going to work out our salvation. Secondly, we're going to hold out the word of life. And thirdly, we're going to pour out our lives. 
for Christ. This will be our outline for the next three Sundays as we gather together. We're going to look at verses 12 to 14 this morning to working out our salvation. Children have opportunities to manifest their obedience. We're told to do certain things, be certain ways, and when we're all sitting around the table and everyone's present, we typically tend to do so. But as soon as someone leaves the room or goes away, or we have opportunity to be on our own, sitting at a computer or whatever, we begin to have our obedience tested. Will we be obedient? And Paul has this situation arise. Uh, he visited the church of Philippi. He established the church uh, years before. You can read about it in the book of Acts. And he now sits actually in prison for preaching about Jesus. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon we call the prison epistles because Paul is sitting in a Roman prison of some kind and he's writing these letters to the fledgling churches. And he writes this one to them and he says, even while I'm not with you, even more so, obey. Obey. Work out your salvation with obedience. Well, this is what it will look like. In verse 12 uh, of chapter 2, it says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Obey. That's the first aspect. Obey. How do we, how do we work out our salvation? Well, the first is with, with obedience. Now, we read the early section of chapter 2 and learned that obedience is actually a, well, we might even say a divine trait, curiously. For the Lord Jesus Christ Himself was obedient to His heavenly Father, the eternal Son, obedient to the eternal Father, obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. That example of humility, that model of obedience, now Paul says, be that way. That kind of obedience is to mark your life if, in fact, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ's obedience accomplished something ours cannot. Christ's obedience actually accomplished our salvation. He worked for our salvation. He obtained our salvation. And Paul is very careful to say, don't work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. Assuming you have it already to work out. To work it out is to flesh it out, is to live it out, to manifest it, to reveal it, to shine it forth. We might by illustration. Work out your salvation, and it, one is to do the things that God would do, to do the things that Jesus would do. This is Jesus' instructions that he gave to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, right? As they go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I've commanded them. Teaching them to observe, to obey all that he's commanded. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You live the way he would live. And we do this because he did it. Salvation is, is a, well, it's an interesting term, isn't it? We, we tend to use the word salvation as only a, 
I don't know, do we even think of it as a present tense? Dave doesn't think so. Dave thinks of it as past tense. Done deal. I've been saved. Well, that's, that's important. And of course, Paul is assuming that. Work out your salvation. Assumes you've been it. Work it out. But it is a present and a future. Salvation is really more of a, an umbrella term that has a past, a present, and a future. I've been saved. I'm being saved. And I'm going to be saved. Justified. I have been justified. I've been declared righteous. I've been declared not guilty of my sin. Now, I had been guilty, but because Jesus shed His blood in my place, God can now legitimately, justly, righteously, wholly declare me not guilty. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. Present tense, sanctification. I'm continuing to be shaped and formed into the image of my Savior. Into the image of the One who made me. I was created in the image of God, and now that I'm justified, I'm being recreated into the image of the Son. His righteousness, the way that He lived, totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bring pleasure to the Father. The word sanctification is simply being made more holy. Past, justified. Present, sanctified. Future. Can you guess? Glorified. Justified, sanctified, glorified. The day will come when my sanctification will be complete. And, I, and that honing, that chipping away at the sin behaviors and tendencies in my mind, in my body, will be done and gone away with, and I will be raised in glory never to sin again and in perfect fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the longer we are on this journey of sanctification and of holiness, uh, the more we long for it to be done. To be at the place of glory. Until then, he's, this is what marks us. These aspects. One is that of obedience. And we're talking about this present reality. But again, we have to reemphasize the, the truth. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work for your justification. He says, live it out. You've been declared not guilty by the precious work of Jesus Christ. Now in your sanctification, live that way. Flesh it out. Well, we need another Pauline passage just to verify this for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8-10. to 10. By grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that 
no one can boast. It's the work of God. The gift of God. Saved by grace. But it goes on, verse 10. For, purpose clause, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Sometimes you hear the term born again. This, that's what this is describing. The word isn't here. It's in John's Gospel, but it's describing the same thing. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared these beforehand that we would walk in them. Obedience. As parents, children, or a teacher with children, you, you like when they obey. When you give an instruction and they follow the instruction, there's peace, there's unity, and you're passing on your character, your traits to the one who follows in like manner. But when your children decide to throw away your image, throw away your model, throw away your example, it hurts. It offends it. And so it is with our Heavenly Father. But He desires that we would walk in His ways to be like Him. Well, we also walk with a, a reverence. We shine forth with a, a reverence for God. Uh, verse 12 goes on to say, yes, uh, obey not only in my presence, but in my absence, and work out your salvation, how? With fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling are not contradictory to joy. Psalm 2 brings these elements together. It admonishes us in Psalm 2, verse 11, fear the Lord and rejoice with trembling. Hmm. Fear the Lord, rejoice with trembling. Now, the word fearing of the Lord is what a concept itself. And it is a reverence, it is a holiness, it is a, an honor. The word fear can also mean worship, serve. In fact, some one place uh, God has given the name or title, fear. Hmm. Fear and trembling. The book of Hebrews highlights this reality as well. Hebrews chapter 12. Now the whole paragraph is really powerful. Let me pick out just a few of the verses to weave it together. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The sprinkled blood speaks a better word. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and so offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
This is the New Testament. This is the New Covenant. This is the work of Jesus Christ. Because He's the mediator of a better covenant with His own shed blood and not the blood of animals, bulls, goats, sheep, but the blood of Jesus. In this New Covenant, this relationship restored with our Maker and our Redeemer, purchased by that blood, is more significant than the old system. And if they received the law at the mount of God with an earthquake and lightning and fear and trembling, how much more so, the book of Hebrews says, should we, who at a greater cost have received the greater blessings of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? This causes us to rejoice, to be thankful, grateful, to have a sense of fulfillment, a sense of completion, A sense of accomplishment. That's what joy really is about. It's a counterpart of shalom, peace. It's not a giddiness, not necessarily a happiness as we define it Americanly, but it is a holiness and a happiness rooted in the precious sacrifice of Jesus. God is mightily working. In the world, He's mightily working in the church. He's powerfully present among us in the Word as it's taught, in the praises that in... He's powerfully present in those ordinances of baptism and of the Lord's table when we celebrate that. He's powerfully present among us. We don't necessarily feel it. We don't necessarily recognize it. We sometimes... Perhaps don't because we're too cavalier. We're just way too either casual about the presence of God or we're too focused on ourselves. We don't even recognize the presence of God. Obedience for God, reverence for God. Verse 13 goes on to say, that we work out our salvation also with His own energy, His own power. Verse 13 goes on to, to say, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's provided the, the motivation, the will, and the ability, the work, for His good pleasure. Now, earlier in Philippians chapter 1, Paul encourages the church right at the start. Philippians is a very encouraging letter. It's a positive letter. They're sad. They're troubled in spirit. And so he constantly admonishes them to rejoice. Again, he says, rejoice. Now, I need that message. I expect we do too. In Philippians 1.6, he says, I'm sure this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Guaranteed. He'll bring it to completion. But he will do the work. Augustine says something like this, Father God, order what thou command. And command. Oh, those are, well, I should have wrote it down. Command what you will and will what you command. I think that's how it goes. Pastor Bill's helping me out. Thank you. The energy from God 
that power that raised Christ from the dead is the power available to you to live shining brilliantly for the sake of Jesus Christ? Do you live and walk in that energy, in that power? Well, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, belief in the, the sovereignty of God doesn't, doesn't leave us just sitting around doing nothing. It's recognizing that God is all-powerful, all-wise, and is working in and through His people by the presence of His Spirit to accomplish His purposes, His pleasure, His will. It compels us to action, to move. We work with confidence. We work with intentionality. We work with courage because it's God who energizes us. If we labor in our own power, our own strength, if we seek, even if we seek that sanctification in our own strength, we lose. We'll, we'll stumble. We'll fail. We must reside in the power of God. Verse 13 goes on to say, because of His good pleasure. It's God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The language is, is a little ambiguous. It's God's pleasure, no doubt. But is it the work of God for His own pleasure? Or is it your work for God for His pleasure? And because of the ambiguity, we'll just say, yes. So often, the mistakes we make in understanding the Scripture, it's, we, we tend to make it an either-or. And many times, it's and and both. We'll, fi we'll find this in verse 16 when we get there next week as well. God's pleasure. God, God enables, God empowers, and God energizes His children. And this divine action brings Him pleasure. God finds pleasure in enabling you. He finds pleasure in energizing you, empowering you. It's for His good pleasure. Um, even the joy of the Lord is to be our strength. And there's a sense in which it's His joy in you. His child. The joy of the Lord to be our strength. His pleasure. Because He is energizing and working in us. What, what delight it is as a dad to take the little child and, and lift them to the counter so that they can do a task of mixing cookie dough. The child can't do that on his own. 
what the Father enables and empowers and lifts and perhaps can't even hold the mixer on its own. So the Father, with the hand on top of the hand of the child, holds the little hand mixer, stirring and beating the cookie dough. Pleasure and joy by enabling and empowering. No wonder Paul says, when I'm weak, he's strong. His grace is sufficient and His grace all the more when I'm weak. The pleasures of God in enabling His people, but it is also the delights of His children who want to bring delight to Him. He delights to give good gifts to Him, to, to, to their, His children. He desires to justify. He desires to sanctify. He desires to glorify. And He is in fact glorified in His own purposes, in His own promises. Don't just take my word for it. Here's the Bible. Verse, uh, Psalm 149 and verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. The Lord takes pleasure in His people. It's not just a one-time occurrence. Psalm 35 and verse 27. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of His servant. Your welfare. Your well-being. And He takes pleasure in those who reciprocate. Those who fear Him. Psalm 147. Verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him. And in seeking to bring God pleasure, you will find pleasure. The greatest pleasure. The all-satisfying pleasure. It's the theological summary of the theology of Jonathan Edwards, popularized by another preacher, pastor, John Piper. God is most glorified in us when we are satisfied with Him. That's what Paul is teaching us. God receives glory, pleasure, delight when we fear Him and when we find all our joy, pleasure, and delight in Him. He is our, as the ethicists, the ethics people say, our sunum bonum, our highest good is God. He is the motivation for our ethics. He is the motivation for the desires of our heart, the longings of our heart. We want to bring pleasure to Him. The believer's supreme purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Westminster Catechism, question number one. It's your purpose as a child of God, it's your purpose as the bride of Christ, to bring pleasure to God.
to your husbandman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound lovey? Yeah. Does that sound like Jesus, your boyfriend kind of stuff? Well, it's better. Yes. Your life is to be so united with Him intimately that you bring Him pleasure and thus the pleasure is yours. Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Paul later in Philippians is going to say this twisted and crooked generation. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you can discern what is the will of God, what is His pleasing and perfect will. Similarly, in Ephesians 5, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, I, I can't help but go to the husband-wife relationship. We, we are the bride of Christ. Our desire is to bring the husbandman pleasure. Good marriage counseling goes to 1 Peter chapter 3, where husbands are admonished to live in accordance with knowledge with their wife. Live according to knowledge with your wife. That is, be a student. Learn. Be a detective. Investigate. What brings your wife pleasure? You will easily find what does not. But take note. Take note. I do, I do on occasion, counsel guys to... Uh, actually write it down. Get a notebook or something, but don't you dare let her see it. <laughs> or anybody else, for that matter. I mean, in today's age now, you got it crypto-vaulted. Now, if this is how practical it is in a husband-wife relationship, this is just working out our salvation. This is just fleshing out the real relationship of which this marriage is based on. We're the illustration. We are the example. The reality is God and Christ. That's real marriage. The Lamb of God and the church. And we're united to Him. We have husbands and wives because Jesus is the husband. We have dads because God is Father, not the other way around. You've heard me say that before. So, maybe we need it repeated. Work to find what brings pleasure to God and we will know that when we are saturated with the very things He's told us about Himself in His Word. Now, verse 14 goes on, and I suppose that most of our versions make a little paragraph break there. And 
uh, that's good and that's fine, but for the sake of our purpose, we're just going to lump this together. We're, we're to do this also without arguing with God. Oh, I know it says do everything without grumbling or questioning or complaining. And it goes on uh, with that paragraph in verse 15. But, but Paul's application here is, is a constant flow as he's been going through. How, how do we work out our salvation? Don't complain about it. Don't grumble about it. Because when we do, we're actually talking back to God. And he, he's, he'll talk about this twisted and crooked generation. And that goes back to the Old Testament people in Deuteronomy chapter 32. He calls them a twisted and crooked generation. They defied God. They grumbled and complained, we don't have enough water. All we got to eat is meat. We're tired of meat. No, I got kind of, well, all we have is manna. Let's, let's start there. We're tired of angel food. And then they want meat. Well, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And the text is really graphic. They ate till it came out their nose. I mean, they were fed up with quail. Can only make it so many ways. Manitou. They want to go back to Egypt. The leeks, the onions, the dates. And they, in their grumbling, are actually dissatisfied with what God is for them. Paul's very quick to bring this application. Now, it doesn't mean that we'll never disagree. We will. But we'll disagree like Philippians chapter 2. Humbly. We will defer to one another out of the other's best interests. And it says, in all things. Do, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Well, like what? Well, all things. Taking out the garbage. Doing your homework. It's part of, all this, too, is part of your sanctification process. When you practice obedience in the relationships that God has put you in and to those in authority over you, God's placed them there. And when you are obedient in those relationships, you bring God pleasure. And obedience in those relationships will be the working out of your salvation and the shaping and forming you into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me list just a few things from a, a church-wide standpoint. Uh, there's more, but we'll just highlight a few. 1 Peter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> People coming over to your house. Why did I invite them over? What? Do we have to do it now? Show hospitality without grumbling. He goes on to say, whatever gift you have, serve one another. All right, so that's just general. Serve one another without grumbling or complaining. 
First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse eight. Pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. That's fascinating. Well, as if you could pray when you're angry. I mean, Peter even warns those husbands. He says, if you're not treating your wife as that fine piece of china, then your prayers aren't even getting to the throne of grace. Your prayers are hindered by the way you treat your wife. He says, pray without quarreling. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and don't quarrel. The one weak in faith, the weaker brother, the one that takes maybe extra patience, extra grace, extra time. Don't grumble or complain. Grumbling, murmuring is a sin of pride. It's a sin of discontent. Not satisfied with what God has placed for you. It's a sin that seeks to gain advantage over others. It's a sin that believes deserves better treatment and attention. We are to be content. We are to be thankful with God and all that God has given and the places where God has put us. Discontent stems from fear, fear that doubts the presence and the provisions of God. And then that fear lashes out at others with all sorts of disagreements. You find a disputing person and personality, you find someone who is not satisfied with God. Well, approaching our anniversary brings the occasion to review ministry memories. There are happy ones. There are serious ones. In these weeks, we're going to reflect on the joyous, happy occasions of ministry memories. But it's also a time that affords the opportunity to reaffirm ministry commitments and core beliefs. And, and that we're a saved people is foundational, fundamental. You cannot work out your salvation unless you're already a saved person. It's, it's foundational in our core belief that we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and lived and died and was raised again to conquer sin and conquer death. That's the essence of our saving faith. And we're saved completely by the work of God in Jesus Christ. And we're saved for the purpose of bringing God the glory, of working out and living out His gift of grace. And as a saved people, our desire, our drive, is to live out the grace of Christ. 
with obedience, with reverence, with energy that God supplies for His pleasure, consumed with His delight, and satisfied with all that He is for us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for this admonition. And we're thankful for Jesus Christ, who's not only an example of obedience and holiness, but is, in fact, the provision of our righteousness. And so we come to Him right now. seeking to be those who belong to Him. Lord, we would put our, our faith and our trust in Him and Him alone. As we make our way through this life, it is filled with dangers and toils and snares and trials. And we're experiencing those now. May they not trip us up. May they not hinder us in our pursuit of Christ. And may they not blockade our vision of Christ exalted. May we not be satisfied with anything less than Him. And may we see all circumstances are Your gift to us. to conform us to the image of Your Son, Jesus. So, by Your Holy Spirit, mold us, shape us, make us, melt us, break us, and conform us to Jesus Christ. In His precious name we come. Amen.